Welcome to Elixir of the Gods. I'm Albert. Hello, Diego, my co-host. Hey, Albert. How are you, man? I'm good. We are already at uh, chapter three of this season. Season three, chapter three. In German, you say Schnapszahl to them. <laughs> <laughs> we have, as we announced in episode one, we have uh, the librarian on our show. Uh, I hope she doesn't mind that expression. We are talking of one of the members of, of uh, Mezcaloteca in Oaxaca, uh, Silvia Filion. She was generous enough to spend some time with us over Zoom. Uh, she got up in the morning and she educated us a bit about what Mezcaloteca is about and the situation in Oaxaca. We were delighted with the time we could spend learning from, from the project and We thank you, Silvia, for we know you have your hands full. So thank you for giving us some some, some time for the show. Yes, you know? exactly. So we recorded this back, I think, in June. Yeah, uh, it was it's a while ago, and uh, finally we get to publishing it. And you guys enjoyed this episode. Enjoy, and don't forget to get in touch with us. You can reach us, yeah, on social media. You you know how to find us. Enjoy. <laughs> Hello, Silvia. Hola, hola, hello. So it's a first time for us on this podcast that we are not in the same room together. The COVID virus is uh, one issue that we are having. So that's why Diego and I are not in the same room. But we also expanded to Mexico and we are live with Oaxaca uh, in this episode with uh, Silvia, who is probably at home, I would say. Yes, that's right. From Oaxaca to Berlin, guys. Yeah. That's amazing, right? <laughs> How long have you been living in, in, in Oaxaca, Silvia? I've been living in Oaxaca since 2007. Ah, okay. A long time now. A long time. I was born in Mexico City. I'm a Mexican. But yeah, I've been living since 2007. We opened Mezcaloteca as a tasting room in 2010. So my first project with Mezcales in Oaxaca was to develop a rancho No, a farm that was from a maestro mezcalero, but he was really old, so he sold it. And I bought it with the intention of bottling traditional mezcal in the region of Miahuatlán. And also uh, with the intention of receiving guests who were interested in the process of mezcal or getting to know a maestro mezcalero. So that's how I started in Oaxaca. How did you get into mezcal? So how, what's your connection to it? Was it a family thing that you felt a connection to it? How did that start? I was working in Mexico City in advertising and I was managing in the account part, uh, huge brands. And like in 2005, I started to travel a lot to Oaxaca just for fun and to get to know the state. And I was traveling a lot to the coast Uh, to Puerto Escondido. So in those trips, I came across to many families uh, that were making traditional mezcal. So that was when I met traditional mezcal and the context of it. And I just got in love with how the community was living, how the families that produce mezcal were living, and of course, with mezcal. So I decided I wanted to promote something more meaningful in my life instead of just cars or cookies or stuff like that. For me, get to knowing uh, the people that work with Mezcal was an inspiration, was a revelation about how could I live my life. So I didn't want to live in the city anymore, right? And Mezcal was a perfect excuse. So that's how I got involved. I've always been very 
sensitive, sensible in flavors and aromas. I'm a big eater. Mm-hmm. For me, it's all about flavors, aromas, textures. So when I got to try good, real, traditional mezcal, I just, you know, I couldn't get off of it. Yeah, that's for me as I'm very new to mezcal. I'm, I've only known it for a couple of years. And for me, the fascinating thing is when I drink a mezcal, how different they can taste. There's such a wide range in the spirits and it's, it fascinates me every time. It has such a, an influence where the plant is growing, what type of plant it is, uh, how the maestro is, is treating the plant, what's the process behind it. And, and that makes it so fascinating to me. And I can imagine that somebody who likes to eat good food and likes different tastes uh, that uh, somebody would be in, into mezcal as well. I, I definitely feel the same way about this. So. <laughs> <laughs> Most of the people we, we come across that uh, are really agave lovers are more like foodies in general, you know, like the guys from Italy, Roberto and Christian, they also love food, you know, and Teddy from Belgium, he's also like, he eats more tacos than I do. Man. I, like he's eating tacos like every two or three days. So I think it has a big relationship, like wine, you know, also people who like wine, they also enjoy a good meal. It's not just like for the, for the wine or for the alcohol in the content, it's everything around it, like all the perception you can get from the liquid, you know, mm. I think. Yeah, I totally agree. You decided to buy a farm in 2007. So what's the story? So how did the farm lead to Mezcaloteca? So maybe you can uh, <laughs> help us with that and tell us about that a little bit. Well, when I got into the community, it was strange for the people of the community that somebody from Mexico City, being a woman, wanted to live you know, in a community far away in Oaxaca. So they were kind of like curious, I think. I was restoring the, the farm for two years and I was sending a lot of mezcal to my clients from Mexico City because those were my first clients. And in those trips of taking the mezcal from Miahuatlán to Oaxaca City uh, to be delivered, when I visited a mezcaleria or a bar and I asked for a mezcal, they were serving mezcales with a warm or mezcales aged in wood barrels. And I was really shocked about this because I was trying all these beautiful mezcales back in the community and then came to the city and been serving this. I was like, but this is not the real mezcal. (laughs) Mm. And how come in the Mecca of mezcal, which is Oaxaca, right? You're getting this type of mezcales when you ask for one. Nobody was telling you about plants, processes, regions, anything. So that's when we decided Oaxaca has to have a tasting room where you can educate people in terms of what are the different categories of mezcal, what's the diversity in agaves you can use to make it, what are the years that agave take, what are the different regions, processes, the recipes of each town, community, So we decided to build a library of traditional mezcales to receive people in order to educate them in terms of mezcal, everything, but only working with traditional mezcal. Uh, I have a question. Was already the tasting room from Amores with Leon there or? Amantes. Amantes, Amantes, sorry, Amantes, yeah. Yeah, the only mezcalerias at that time in 2010 were Amantes. And Ulises. Quish, este, and... 
No, in situ didn't exist. Ah, okay, in situ was not there yet. Okay. Sí, wasn't there yet. So, Asociación de Palenqueros, Amantes y Quish. So, since we open, you know, Mezcaloteca, if you haven't been there, guys, uh, it's a very small space. Uh, we just have a big barra where you sit down mm. and you see all the collection of mezcales. Uh, we don't have any music. So, it's more like a speakeasy that is receiving people from all over the world with reservation because, of course, education needs certain rules, right? Uh, so we work only by reservation. And for an hour, you sit down with a host that asks you about what do you drink? If you drink mezcal, what do you like? We talk about the process so they can understand their different categories of mezcal, that mezcal is not just one thing and it's made just one way. We talk about what they like, of what they're trying. They're generally contrasting uh, three to four mezcales. So they're generally contrasting flavors and aromas and deciding what they like best. How to taste a mezcal correctly also, it's very important mm -hmm. uh, because that changes a lot the perception in the consumer. And also it, it helps him to start training his palate, his or her palate. So in the future, they would know what to ask for or what they're liking best. Mm -hmm. My plan wasn't to come to lead to the city at all, uh, but this beautiful library of traditional mezcales and the experience of sharing this with all the people that we receive still keeps me here in Oaxaca, no city. I'm trying to keep track of what you're all talking because there are so many little pathways uh, that we can explore together. So you mentioned uh, we started to do this. We started to build this library. Who is we? That's my <laughs> first question. Yeah. The project started with three founders. One of them is my brother and the other one it's a good friend, Marco. But recently uh, he left the project and nowadays we're two people that are managing the project of Mezcaloteca. So you have all the spirits with a different background, different um, different maestros. How did you build these relationships? Uh, so you said you were coming from Mexico City, so you were probably a bit of an alien in Oaxaca when, when you arrived there. So how did you grow these this kind of uh, uh, relationships? I started uh, promoting the mezcales I knew from Oaxaca in Mexico City. Like I said, in 2004, 2005, and I searched who was working with mezcales in Mexico City. At that time, you had the Logia of the Mezcolatras, which was leaded by Cornelio Perez. So he was doing a lot of tastings in Mexico to bring culture into people for traditional mezcales. So... I called him one day and I say, hey, look, Cornelio, I have some mezcales from Mehuatlán that I want you to try. He tried them. He loved them. So I started to work with him. And also at that time, people like Graciela Ángeles from Real Minero, Lalo Ángeles from La Locura, were working a lot in Mexico City also with the consumers in Mexico City because Oaxaca in terms of uh, mezcal tourism was a little bit dead. Nobody was heading to Oaxaca for that specifically. So we all started promoting good mezcal in Mexico City. And that's where I met most of the producers there that I work with now because they were organizing a lot of events, ferias, where we all get together and get to know each other and just 
were talking to people, making tastings and pouring mezcales. Mm. I met a lot of producers there. And of course, all over the years, I started to, to meet even more. No? How many families uh, work with you now? We work with more than 100 maestros mezcaleros, approximately 120 maestros mezcaleros from all over Mexico, not just from Oaxaca. Okay. And we try to bring more into the collection, but it's a hard work, right? Because we are very thorough with what we bring to the collection. We want to make sure that it's traditional mezcal. So first of all, we try the mezcal. And if that mezcal tastes or it has the characteristics of a traditional mezcal, then we make a huge questionnaire to the family in terms of getting to know how they, they learn to make mezcal, who showed them, what's the tradition in their family, what are agaves they're using more, what kind of production or recipe they're following. And if that questionnaire gives us all the answers of a traditional technique, then we go and visit the Palenque. So it's a process that takes uh, a lot of months and a lot of work. A lot of maestros mezcaleros come to us and offer us their mezcales, but we have to make all these tests to make sure that we're only going to put in the collections mezcales that represent tradition, the tradition of mezcal making in Mexico. I was wondering when I heard about Mezcaloteca for the first time, you were the first organization who was putting all this information on the, on the bottles, like the maestro type of fermentation, how the agave is, uh, agave is harvested, um, what was the idea behind that transparency and uh, using this kind of uh, information on the bottles themselves? The inspiration was the industry of whiskeys and libraries, no? Mm -hmm. We were pushing at that time a lot of um, drinking white mezcales because nobody was used to drinking white mezcales. And actually, the mezcales we were drinking were, you know, 38% of alcohol, 40%. So we were pushing a lot mezcales with high volume of alcohol. And, um, yeah, we were the first ones that started to promote all the information in our production. We thought that as a consumer, you needed to know how the mezcal was made to understand why it tastes like it tasted so that was the reason behind it mostly and many followed suit uh, since then right so you you started this uh, this kind of transparency uh. yes and i'm glad you know uh people just got into it understood and started copying oh we should put this information we should put this other information because it's very common in uh, to find products with just very few information right and We are also people that are concerned about what you put in your body, right? What you eat, what you drink. And I think that mezcal, it's been so appreciated because it got in a time where the consumer was changing this consciousness about starting to eat or drink organic products or products that are not, do not have chemics or are not industrial or they don't taste the same all the time. That was very important also. Stuff with its own character, basically, that has its its own um, character or life, I would say, yeah. Yes, that it's unique and irrepetable, mm. right? Yeah. And that you prefer to buy and give money to a family instead of giving all your money to big corporations. You know, with the story of tequila, it was different when tequila got very popular. The consumer mind was all about industrial products because that was the new thing. 
So we all wanted, you know, the same gum that our neighbor had, the same t-shirt, the same brand. But over the years, we've learned that that's not the best, you know, and also that Chemex in many ways affect us and we want to try different things. So I think 12 years ago, that's why Mezcal started to get so popular because it has all this that the consumer was looking for. We discussed this in, in other episodes. There is a trend or there used to be a trend in consistency and some spirits still have that. If you buy a bottle of a big branded spirit, you are looking for that consistency because it always will, will taste the same. But it gets boring with time. And uh, I think people in general are curious. And when that curiosity is not satisfied, I don't know. I think exploration is part of our, our human nature. And that makes it, uh, at some point, you want to return and you want to experience something new and something that you, that you haven't known so far. And for me, as somebody who just discovered this world a couple of years ago, it's definitely that. Whenever I, I have a new bottle or even a new batch from the same producer it tastes different and that that makes it so so exciting and maybe you have something that maybe is not up to your flavor or not to your your style but it's still something different every time and that that's that's really fascinating to me yeah i agree i heard that uh i heard an interview with you i don't know how long ago like i think like three or four months ago maybe the interview was older i'm not sure But you mentioned that maybe you guys start eliminating some of the information from the bottles, you know, because there is a situation nowadays that mezcal is trendy and uh, some people with money can track good producers really easy and just buy them out because the situation, we could explain it, but we don't have to go down there. But the situation in Mexico with the Maestros Mezcaleros is that some of them need the money if you go there and offer them some money just to work for you but then they become a brand they don't become like a family work how's that situation when did you start spotting this situation and, and correct me if i'm wrong you, you said this right that maybe you guys changed the labels a bit yeah we did actually this started to happen five years ago and what we did uh the change to the label is that we took the last name of the maestro mezcalero Because I think the real problem about this is that when mezcal started to get really trendy, people look mezcal as a pure business or they want to be recognized for having a brand and they want to be famous for having a brand. So it's about business and getting famous. But mezcal is not an industry. Mezcal, since the agave is taking so long to mature, Mezcal is about the culture of Mexico and what the communities have been doing for centuries with these recipes and developing these recipes, right? So I've seen many times, and it has happened to us at Mezcaloteca since we're giving all the information, that people are just coming in and taking pictures of the label and then going to look for the Maestro Mezcalero. When they find the Maestro Mezcalero, they think that it's only about paying him good and taking the mezcal and bottling it. But actually, when you do that, when you go to a community and just buy mezcal from a maestro mezcalero at good prices, you're separating the maestro mezcalero from the community because the community is always going to be like, oh, you know, Mr. Nacho or the Nacho is earning a lot of money, but he's the only one. 
No, he's the only one getting famous. So you somehow separate the Maestro Mezcaleo from the community. And then since you're going to ask for more mezcal to him because you have a high demand, your brand has a high demand, the most probable thing and the thing that's happening is what you said. Maestros Mezcaleros are starting to abandon their traditional recipes. Even so, if they were producing, I don't know, a tobalat, 50% of alcohol, most of the times, they're bringing down the alcohol volume to produce more because they're producing more, no? And they're changing the recipes to serve this demand. So for us, it's about conservating culture and conservating these recipes. Of course, there's going to be an evolution in the tradition of mezcal making. Traditions always have an evolution, but it's an evolution that has to be accompanied with the maestro mezcalero. I've seen also maestros mezcaleros that were used to earn nothing with mezcal making, right? It was something they were doing for them and for the families and the community. And now that they are receiving a lot of money, they only care about money. And they don't care about stressing their productions or stressing certain plants. So that is the real problem. Uh, working with Maestros Mezcaleros is not just about paying them good, here's your money, bye-bye. No. It's about building a real relationship with them, with the community, and giving them a job for many, many years, not just once or twice. So that is the reason that we, we took that information from the label because suddenly it was just too undiscreet, all these people coming. We already built this relationship with these maestros mezcaleos. It has taken a long time. We don't want them to change the recipes yes. to going to produce less quality liquid. So, And I'm putting all the information here for you and I don't know what your intentions are. We've lost many maestros mezcaleros like that, and that's when we decided to act. I think that interview was another podcast, uh, Maestros del Mezcal. I listened uh, before. I like what you said also there. It's not a business. It's about culture, and it's about preserving the culture and the tradition that needs to, that needs to evolve. I would be interested if you, since you, you've been in Oaxaca for a while, when you noticed that something is changing, Do you remember when it was? Was it a specific event or was that something that, that happened slowly? When did you notice that things are not the same? Did you have a feeling for that? Yes, that's a very good question, actually, because when we opened in 2010, almost all the people we were receiving at Mezcaloteca were nationals, people from Mexico, different states from Mexico, but people from Mexico. And then that started changing. You know? We started receiving a little bit of people from Europe, but not too much. And around 2015, 2016 was the real change for Mezcales. We started to get all these people from the U.S. that were interested in understanding the spirit and were starting to study the spirit. And I remember perfectly that the team was like, oh man, we don't give tasting tastings in Spanish anymore. Everything's in English. <laughs> no? And then we were exhausted because we had to, you know, work with these two languages every day, but most of the tastings start becoming in English. And then after the people from the US came, we started having a lot of people from Australia. 
even Colombia, and then a lot of Europeans interested in mezcal. But at first, they came to Oaxaca for many things, I think. And then it was just, oh, I'm here in Oaxaca only because of mezcal and gastronomy. So that also changed a lot for the tourism in Oaxaca. At first, I mean, the tourist in Oaxaca was trying to experience culture, food, textiles, communities. Yes, mezcal, but also handcrafts, no? And now it's all about, oh, I'm here in Oaxaca because the food and, and the mezcal. The next question that I have on this is, how to keep the balance because i think in a some way it's good that it gets the attention because it, it pays money and it's probably giving the producers a, a certain livelihood or a better chances to to be economically successful than before that but on the other hand if you exploit the resources too fast and if you produce too much that it's not sustainable then there will be a natural end to this uh, thing or it will be totally industrialized so How to keep the balance? What thoughts do you have about this? Well, I think a lot in this, actually, and I think to, that to keep a balance is going to be really hard. Not that it's not possible, uh, but I, what I've seen over the years, it's an explosion of brands that are promoting less quality of mezcales, uh, more and more. I also see a tendency of monocultivation in terms of the agaves, When you go to the coast from Oaxaca to Salina Cruz, you see a lot of monocultivation of espadín, which is the agave that takes the less time to mature. And it looks terrible. It kind of starts looking like a tequila, right? I think that as long as there are projects that are preserving the traditional part of it, it's going to be okay. And the consumers are going to be able to find these amazing or extraordinary mezcales to drink. But... What's going to happen when we're not here anymore as projects dedicated to the culture of mezcal? I mean, the tendency is going to become faster to just bottle sell, bottle sell, monocultivation, getting more into an industrial, semi-industrial production. That was something I wanted to ask you. Is there like a, a, a common mind between the brands, like between Graciela and, and Real Minero and Mezcaloteca and La Locura and even Danzantes and Alipus to try and keep this culture like you guys talk and try to create like a line, a defensive line before. Like a community or, or, exactly. or an interest group. Or you something. guys talk and, 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 and try and organize or is it like a, a one-man fight? I think we try to organize and to make a group that protects But also everybody has a lot of work in the daily basis. So everybody is just marching its own way. No? It's complicated. It's complicated. We Mezcal is a difficult world. I think that it's a world of a lot of personalities and egos and in business industry people. So it's complicated for you to share the same core things about Mezcal with a lot of projects, even though we do. And we defend or recommend each other. And we stick together in, in some conferences or reunions in the daily basis. It's so hard and it's so much work to sell mezcal that we lose and we get separated, right? Even though people that come to Mezcaloteca ask me, oh, who should I go visit? And I will recommend Lalo or recommend Graciela. 
and say nice things about their projects. I mean, essentially, in the daily basis, we get lost, definitely. And you think the CRM is helping? First of all, are they doing really a representation job or are they more into politics? I think they're doing both. I think the legislation for mezcales in Mexico, it's pretty far from being a good one. And that represents a lot of problems because they're more there to help the industry than to help the culture or the farmer that is producing mezcal. So that's that's the real problem about it. The DO that they made for mezcales, I mean, not the CRM, but the country in general, It's a deal that it's based in categories more than defending regions. So that's the real problem about it because, I mean, Mezcal is all about regions, right? And a deal should be about um, describing a product in terms of the region where it's made, like champagne or, yeah, of course. or any other drink that has a deal. But in Mexico, it's just not well done. So I think it's good to have a CRM, but I think that there's many, many things they need to get better and they need to change in order to be effective in terms of regulating mezcal. And I also think that um, the capacity of the CRM, it's really short in terms of the diversity of mezcal in Mexico, right? So yeah, I think CRM, it's more there to help commercializing and help the industry than to investigate and preserve. And it should be the other way around, right? What kind of action could the CRM take? If you were a consultant to the CRM, what would you recommend to, for them to do? First, go back to revise the DO and make a good DO for mezcales instead of trying to categorize mezcales because that is leaving a lot of maestros mezcaleros out from exporting because they're, for example, the... You need to make a lab test before you export a mezcal. And that lab test makes you um, go into certain things like methanol, alcohol volume, furfural, etc. And I think those limits are very closed, very low. If you look at the regulations of spirits in Europe, the limits are so high. So The limits in mezcal were the copy-paste of the tequila ones, which were made for an industrial business thing. This is making a big problem because maestros mezcaleros are trying to change the recipe so they can pass a lab test and export. And then they have to decide which category they're going to be in, artisanal, ancestral, or just mezcal. I think that I would tell to the CRM uh, to be more in the culture part of protection than just the business part of it and that they would have to revise the DO and the gnome in terms of protecting first the culture and the tradition of the maestro mezcalero before anything else and making a lot of consulting with them consulting with experts like biologists chemics, teachers, maestros mezcaleros, people from the communities, instead just people from the industry, no? Do you see like a situation where some maestros mezcaleros, because I see it happening more and more often, are not labeling mezcal anymore. They're just going for agave distill, you know, because the regulation doesn't help you. Know, and it costs too. Yes. To put last name mezcal on the bottle has a price. So some maestros mezcaleros are just saying, man, 
for example, a maestro mezcalero from Tamaulipas, you know, and the, the, the CRM is in Oaxaca and, and they come and they tell him like how a traditional mezcal should be done. But this guy is from Tamaulipas and maybe he's a five generation maestro mezcalero and he's saying like, dude, no, you don't come and tell me how to do it, you know, just to give me a last name. So I'm not going to use your last name. Thank you. But I'm going to keep doing my mezcal, calling it mezcal. I will call it mezcal. I will not label it mezcal, but it's a mezcal. In the end, of course, it's a mezcal. And I see more and more often that the category agave spirit is growing. Yes, I think Mezcaloteca has a part of this, uh, or we are guilty for this in some way. Like Albert was, was saying, where's the balance? Because when we open Mezcaloteca, most of the mezcales or almost all the mezcales we have in the collection, uh, they can't be called mezcal because the maestros mezcaleros are not with the CRM. I mean, these are farmers that hardly know how to read sometimes. They don't want to start dealing with people, telling them how to produce their mezcal, paying all these fees to make mezcal and to make it work. So we started to teach the consumer that an aguardiente de agave or a destilado de agave, it's probably even better than one that it's called mezcal, But now there's also a lot of sharks in the industry just avoiding all the regulations and taking the mezcal from Mexico, bottling in the U.S. probably, and using it as destilado de agave, right? So it was a good thing to show the consumer that a mezcal can be called in different ways, but it's also a tricky thing because now everybody's doing whatever they want. If you have a destilado uh, de agave... Sorry if I uh, pronounced it wrong. But it, it, it can be that you get something excellent, very, very good, or it can be that you get something very, very bad. So you have to do your research again, I guess, to read the bottle right. Do I understand that correctly? Or Yeah, uh, you have to train your palate so you can decide if the mezcal that you're drinking it has a good process or not. But I think that's the fault on having faulty legislation in mezcal. The, the word mezcal belonged to the to the producers in all Mexico, and they were calling their product mezcal before even the DO existed. So when the DO comes, instead of integrating and protecting, it started to make a battle, separating battle. Uh, so yeah, a lot of people are now moving into destilados de agave or, or aguardientes de agave because it's easier to export. You don't have so much paperwork, it's more efficient, The CRM, I think it's too small, you know, just to handle all the production in Mezcal of Mexico. So the easiest way is put Aguardiente de Agave and forget about all this fees, legislation, which are not fair for the producers. So that would have to change. Also, uh, even in the, in the places where the producer is allowed and he did everything right, but he went for the puntas recipe. If you go above 55, then it's not a mezcal anymore. You know? And some of the producers produce puntas yeah. for, the, for themselves. And that's not a mezcal. It cannot be called mezcal. So it's again like, yeah, the legislation. Legislation is not protecting. It's trying to change the spirit into other things, in something that it's not mezcal, with the tendency of making it the cousin of tequila or being outside internationally selling anywhere. But the legislation should be about protecting and understanding this diversity instead of the opposite. And we're in the opposite. So that's the huge problem. 
I'm getting a bit depressed right now. <laughs> um, but maybe maybe you have some good news as well. Or what? What? I I I think you see some positive things now. You, you being in Oaxaca, so so maybe what is the positive things that that you're seeing? Uh, it cannot be all bad, right? <laughs> no, it's not all bad. The positive things is that whenever you give a good mezcal to somebody, you change the life of that person. You make these people more conscious about what they drink, what they eat, about how to appreciate not just mezcal, but every drink, you know, about how you can live drinking without having hangovers and all these chemics, you know. And so you really are touching the life and changing people whenever you pour a good mezcal. So that's priceless. That change of consciousness in the consumer, it's priceless. That's a good thing. Mezcal remembers us that we live in a world where everything is unique. We tend to forget this a lot in this modern society where everything's the same. Mezcal reminds us that there are no two rocks that are the same. There are no two tree leaves that are the same. And it changes the way you appreciate spirits and other drinks. And it changes the way that you look at farmers that you look at culture. So yeah, I mean, that is the greatest thing. Mezcal, good mezcal changes people, people's minds. And this has been happening for generations, but I mean, mezcal is very new for us. For us in the modern world, we've been knowing mezcal for 15 years, many. Uh, Even for us Mexicans. For us in the new modern world, before yes, the yes, farmers yes. and the families in the communities is something that they are living with since... Forever, no? We still have a lot to learn from mezcal. Also, mezcal inspires people a lot. I mean, you sit down with, with your copita of bicuiche and you get all these herbal flavors and aromas and you get inspired of how we can do something like this with our hands. How can nature be so wonderful? And that's good. But this is a daily thing going on. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so Diego and I, we just uh, poured from from the same bottle, or not the same bottle, but the same uh, type of um, uh, different bottles, but uh, same, same product, same batch. Same batch. I saw a video with you recently, uh, Silvia, and that was very fascinating to me. You explained how to taste mezcal. It was in Spanish, so I didn't understand uh, a lot, but a little bit. But you dipped your finger into the glass, and then you uh, put it on your on the back of your hand. Can you can you describe that process? What it does? It seemed very. It was a very sensual thing, and the way you did it, it, it was uh, one could feel the love that you have for this product. But I, I wanted to ask you what it does to you and why you're doing it this way. Okay, so at Mezcaloteca, we want to make sure that everybody knows how to taste a mezcal correctly. And so you always start when you're tasting a mezcal. The first quality test you need to do to a mezcal is to make sure that your mezcal is made out of cooked agave in an earth oven, right? Because that is the main ingredient to elaborate any mezcal. The best way to make sure of that is putting your finger inside the copita and then rubbing it in your hand until it dries. When it dries, smell it and let me know what you detect. Mm -hmm. what, do you, what do you smell? What are you smelling? I smell um, 
I smell green and I smell a bit of smoke. Good. So if you guys have ever tried cooked agave, like... Cooked agave, that's what I was saying. Mm -hmm. uh -huh. So um, it's always smoky, woody, and sweet. Some agaves are, tend to have a herbal thing appearance there, but mostly it's going to be smoky, woody, and sweet. So that is the taste of the cooked agave. And you have to look for that in your hand. What happens if you do that and it doesn't smell to anything, for example? It's probable that your mezcal has too much water. Or if you do that and it smells to sugar cane, well, you're not drinking mezcal. <laughs> <laughs> Mixto, no? Uh-huh. Azúcar de caña, no? <laughs> or if you do that and it smells to grain or to grape, you're not drinking mezcal. So this is the first test to make sure that your mezcal is made out of cooked agave. Then the, the second part is about smelling your mezcal, no? Just smelling the copita and trying to do this with your mouth open and closed because that can change the perception of what you're getting in the nose. Mm -hmm. Just describe what you're smelling, no, without getting too complicated. It can be alcohol, herbal, sweetness, spices. We, we are trying a Real uh, Minero right now. And what the... What I, I find interesting about Real Minero is it's not very smoky. It's not a very smoky mezcal to me, but it has a certain complexity. For example, when I open it and I, I smell the, the cork, it is like caramel to me. It's, a, it's, it's very, very sweet and, and caramel. And, but when you smell it uh, in, a, in a glass, it's, 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 it's a different smell. So it also depends in which kind of uh, context you are having it. So this one... It's hard to say for me. I, I'm not such a connoisseur. I'm not a sommelier. So for, for me, I'm probably my, my description is like like a caveman drawing on the on the stones. You know, <laughs> like I, I, every description is correct, Albert. I would say <laughs> every description. Everyone, it's very subjective. So whatever, like everyone is right in the end when 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 they. I agree know. with with what Diego says. You have to think that we all have trained our palates in different ways. So there's not an objective description of a production of mezcal. It's only subjective. We're going to agree in many things, mm -hmm. but they agree in many things. Mm. And these that you were saying that you find the mezcal is of Real Minero not very smoky. Remember that the smell in the hand is always going to be different than the smell in the glass, first of all. And that means that they're using uh, very good plants. No, they're not just using espadín. Uh, when you're just trying espadín, most of the times it's going to be smoky and that's it, you know, because of the years that the plant take to mature. So, yeah, definitely the smell in the hand is going to be different than in the nose. And don't feel like a caveman because this is the way to start uh, to train your palate. But you have to make yourself a moment to smell it in your hand, to smell it in your glass. Describe that. At first, it's going to be hard, but then it's going to get easier. And then suddenly you're going to be like, whoa, I'm saying all this stuff just about. <laughs> but it's just practice for everyone. And then the best part is the tasting part, because in the tasting part, what you want to do is sip your mezcal and wash your mouth with it. So you can get rid of the high alcohol volume and forget about the flavor of the alcohol so you can get deep into the flavors of the mezcal. So the washing is to totally worth it. Actually, a lot of people at Mezcaloteca always tell us, oh, the whole tasting is worth it. 
just to get to know that you have to wash because that changes the experience yeah. so much. And people start thinking uh, as mezcal as, oh, it's something I can sip and describe from moment to moment and not just something that I have to shot and get drunk with, you know, but a drink that I can enjoy and describe. When I have a mezcal on my own, I thoroughly enjoy even just smelling after I drank it, just smelling the the, the glass or, or the cup and just having the smells uh, that are residual. I really, it's like a perfume to me in, in a way. So I, I, I go back and I, I, when I watch a movie or something like that and the, the glass is empty, I, I see myself going to it, take a smell, be like, ah, oh, and then put it in the back again. And that's, that's already often enough. I mean, I enjoy drinking it too. I enjoy drinking it more, of course, but uh, uh, still having that kind of uh, memory in, in, in the little glass is, I, I love it. I, I, I just love to do that. Yes, it's like smelling uh, history. Yeah. Or nature, or how was this made? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Same. Silvia, we haven't talked about uh, one important thing that we wanted to bring up. Uh, we have also always a bit of an issue with diversity on this podcast. Uh, so it's mostly men that we have on, on this show. And yeah, there are a few names that are famous. I think one of them is yours and uh, the other one is Graciela. And probably, so these are the two women in Mezcal I know. And we wanted to also ask you about that about the development there and your experience as a woman that is very very deep in the center of it so maybe you can tell us a little bit about that and we can learn about it and be a bit aware about the diversity that uh, that is there or is not there yeah i think it's it's a actually it's an amazing story of how uh, women are getting popular in the mezcal business uh, when i started You went to a palenque and the wife of the maestro mezcalero was only, you know, probably was the one collecting the money for the mezcal because the maestro mezcalero was the one drinking the mezcal with you and getting drunk with you, right? So that was the only woman presence you saw when you visited a palenque. Since 2016, 2017 approximately, I've seen a huge change in this. Of course, there there was always a lot of women commercializing mezcal, but now even the same maestros mezcaleros are open to say, oh yeah, my wife helps me when I'm producing mezcal, or my wife did this production by herself because I went to the fields to collect my beans or my corn, and she helps me when I'm busy with other stuff. And it has been um, mind-breaking for me because, yeah, it was an industry of men and only men were producing mezcal. But I think that we're evolving as humans in a good way. And mezcal has also showed us that women are involved in the production and the commercialization and the culture of it. And this has exploded for the last four or five years. It's very recent, actually. For me, when I got into this community at the point where nobody knew anything about mezcales and nobody, you know, appreciated them. Maestros mezcalos were looking at me like, oh, this girl is funny. She's weird. She's funny. And what made them change that perception of me was when I started to give jobs to everybody in the community. So that was like, oh, no, this girl is, is really serious. <laughs> She's not just playing or having an adventure or anything, no? So, uh, and I think that women have always been uh, involved in the production of mezcal 
even if they said it before or not. Not in every community. There are communities that are very close, and sometimes they would tell you that if a woman is menstruating, she can't go inside the palenque because she's going to affect the fermentation or the distillation. You still hear things like that. Wow, okay. Uh, but it has been changing a lot. And nowadays, we even have maestras mezcaleras that are being recognized by their husbands or their communities as maestras mezcaleras. So that was the thing I was telling you about mezcal, that mezcal really changes you, changes the way you think, the way you speak about things. And this is one of those changes. I don't know how, because Mexico is very machista. No, it's all about men. But somehow in the mezcal world, women are started to being recognized and their work is starting to be recognized. And I think that is just amazing. Last year, uh, one of the Maestras Mezcaleras was nominated no, for Berlin as one of the, for a prize, no? She was nominated. Yeah. I don't think she won, but I think she was nominated no, to, to as Best Maestra, no? That, that's a huge step in the world of mezcales, no? And I have many maestras mezcaleras that have productions in Mezcaloteca of their mezcales. And sometimes we do this contrast, like we serve the same agave made from her and her husband, right? And the consumers go like, oh, I prefer hers, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> and because we, we women are very good at cooking, you know, mezcal making is like cooking agave, right? And there's a lot of stories there that the women were always helping in the production when the maestro mezcalero got too drunk or he went out. <laughs> that, that would have been my next question. So, so how is the reality? So maybe it's just a, a visibility thing, but the, the work and the, the craftsmanship and the knowledge was maybe already there in the generations, but, uh, but it wasn't as prominent or it wasn't seen as an asset that women had such an important role in, in creating this product. So I, that could, could explain maybe some of it uh, as well so that that it's always been a women's business not business but a women's uh, contribution to it uh, or not even a contribution maybe they had the leadership but on the outside it was of course the man who was harvesting all the the prices and the the admirations i'm sure that this was uh, the case more than once yeah they, they just weren't communicating this mm -hmm. and now they are i remember there that, that it's not every community no just some communities But yeah, I mean, it's been there all the time, the help of the woman. They just weren't communicating it because they thought it was a man thing. But now that it's open, it's, I mean, I, mean, I think it's great. So you see, you see a change, a positive change. I, I, I am very glad. This is, these are, for example, excellent news from the industry. We were saying that we were a bit depressed, and, 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 but these this are also very good news. As much as Mezcal changes you and also the fact that this industry is accepting much more its female side because it has a female side of course and it's accepting it and, and embracing it uh, that's those are excellent news for yes. the industry yeah and as in any topic i think that we you have always positive things and negative things that is just the world we live in so see, so you see, see for sure if we if we went deep on any industry we would find a lot of flaws and a lot of positive things but yes i agree yeah if we go deep in any subject There's black and white for everything. Yes, always. In this yeah. world, always. So. 
So what's your outlook? Uh, I think we could slowly have to wrap it up. Uh, we want to respect your time, Silver, but this has been an amazing conversation so far. Uh, uh, that's one one of the things I always feel a little smarter when I talk to people uh, like you. So that's the selfish one of the selfish reasons why I'm uh, doing this. Uh, <laughs> first of all, thank you. But maybe maybe what's the outlook? What's the outlook for Mescaloteca? Mescalosfera, which I think Mescalosfera is a European branch of Mescaloteca, right? Mescalosfera is the branch of Mescaloteca that exports mezcales. So we're exporting only what we are producing in Miahuatlán, Oaxaca. I like the project of exportation because we build it a Palenque in Miahuatlán mm -hmm. and we invite the maestros mezcaleros from the region to produce there. Ah, okay. Whenever they want, whatever they want. Mm -hmm. We don't charge them anything to use a palenque, and for them it's great because they get to sell a little bit more and have the international recognition they deserve. But we're not stressing anything with agendas or anything. And, and what, okay. what what are they distilling on clay pot or copper steel? Copper steels, okay. Copper steel with uh, refrescadera, okay, because that is how the region works. But we really want to introduce clay because they're very interested in getting to know other techniques to work with. And uh, oven pit. So yes. underneath cook. Okay. Yes. Okay. Sometimes they are smashing by hand. Sometimes they're using the stone mill. But we work with seven different maestros mezcaleros from Miahuatlán that are exporting with mezcalosfera, right? Okay. Um, I see. Uh, so Mezcaloteca, more than being a brand, is a project that has many branches. And mm -hmm. one of them is the exportation part, which is Mezcalosfera. And it's all about inspiring and educating uh, palates from outside of Mexico. And most of the times what we're uh, exporting is Aguardiente de Agave, because we're respecting the recipes of the Maestros Mezcaleros. We're not changing them. And for Mezcaloteca... This November 2020, we're going to be 10 years. Uh, we're celebrating the 10 years of the project. So we were going to have uh, this big anniversary, anniversary where we are renovating the distillery. But the situation was right now is not very clear. So I don't know if we're going to be celebrating the 10 years this year or maybe starting next year, probably. Mm -hmm. But uh, we're going to celebrate, that's for sure, guys. And you're invited, of course. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Thank <laughs> you. Invitation. And it's all about, you know, making a week of conferences with all these interesting people we've met over the years, uh, with maestros mezcaleros, biologists, chemists, uh, consumers, people that have restaurants, chefs, and then just making a huge party with the Maestros Mezcaleos in Miahuatlán to celebrate. Mezcaloteca is getting stronger, but it, it's also getting more purist, right? Because we're going to reach a point. We have a limit on the mezcal we can sell because we're respecting recipes and we're not stressing agaves. So when we reach that limit, we're going to stop producing or selling more mezcal it's just going to be about where if you want to get your mezcaloteca or mezcalos para bottle you should hurry up because there's already a line and we're not going to stress anything what we have here is what you get and this is it and we're looking into getting to developing more the branch of the project that has to do with investigation right because there's more books now uh, about mezcal about agave 
maybe a little bit more maps, but there's a lot to be done. And the government in Mexico is not going to make this possible. So it has to come from the private initiative. And Mezcaloteca has always had that curiosity of getting more into the investigation part, creating more maps, putting all this information that we have over 10 years, you know, about recipes, about flavors and aromas out there, making that possible. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of work. There's a lot of wonderful and thrilling work to, to get done. There's more people to get inspired. We want to keep on changing people's minds in terms of what they consume, definitely. We're going to be there. We're going to be there as long as we can, you know, just preserving the culture of mezcal. It sounds to me, Silvia, that you uh, don't regret your decision to not sell cars or any other products anymore. <laughs> I love your enthusiasm and your passion for this. And this is something we see with everybody we have interviewed so far. The level of passion and the level of emotional attachment to this culture is uh, is outstanding. People that we interview have a lot of values and you can feel that in the interviews. And so it's really a, a precious thing. And thank you again for taking your time and talk to us, getting up early yes, in the thank morning. Thank you very much. <laughs> Don't worry, guys. Thank you for promoting and communicating. That's amazing. We are Elixir of the Gods. You can reach us on social media, on Instagram at Elixir Podcast, Twitter at Elixir Podcast. On Facebook, we are at Elixir of the Gods. And if you want to write us a mail, you can write to us at Elixir of the Gods podcast at gmail.com. Sylvia, how can people reach out to you? How can they follow Mezcaloteca, Mezcalosfera? You can reach us in social media. Uh, we're like at Mezcaloteca in Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter also. If you want to send us an email, The best way to do it would be lamezcaloteca at gmail.com. And whatever you need, guys, I'm here. Thank you. We're going to put that info in the uh, in written form as well, so it's easy to just click on it. Uh, Sylvia, thank you so much for your time. This was a wonderful conversation and very inspiring. And I'm really happy right now. So. <laughs> thank you, guys. And stay safe. Drink a lot of mezcal. <laughs> and salud. Salud. Stay safe, you too. Okay, bye-bye.